All right, while the stragglers are straggling in, remember to turn off our phones, see if we can get the projector to work. All right, just a reminder, go over a couple of announcements here. The um, trip to Washington, D.C. is really coming together. I've spent a lot of time today and yesterday talking with people in Congressman Gomert's office as well as in Congressman, I mean, uh, Senator Cruz's office, and so everything that, that way is getting squared away, and we'll be getting, for those who are going, we'll be getting an updated uh, schedule to everybody in the next day or two with uh, a hopefully final, uh, a lot of final information. So... If you haven't received any emails, because there's two or three people who had not, as we've sent them out using a, a an email program, uh, please let us uh, please let us know. And uh, that is really the only. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. This Saturday morning is our men's prayer breakfast, so uh, encourage men to come out for the. For the prayer breakfast, uh, it, it will be at 7.30, not 7 o'clock as the uh, email suggested. Eddie, I'm not getting this thing to come on. But um, so 7.30 for the breakfast, 9 o'clock for the uh, deacons meeting. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, we need to go to the Lord in prayer and make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord. And after a few moments of silent prayer, when Eddie will flip the switch off, you can't hear me anyway, then I'll open in prayer. Okay, let's pray. Oh, it's coming on. Father, it's a great joy we have to walk with you and to be uh, part of the body of Christ. Just phenomenal, all the blessings that we have in Christ, all that you have provided for us. And Father, we're thankful that we can uh, walk with you, enjoy our relationship with you. And Father, when we sin, we know that we can receive complete, total forgiveness, welcome back in fellowship as depicted in the parable of the prodigal son and father we're thankful that we have that we have are the beneficiaries of your grace and father we're thankful for the opportunity to study your word and to probe it to think it through to come to understanding the implications and the applications of your word to our thinking and we pray tonight that as we go through a probably uh, passage that is not taught very much that we might come to understand its uh, significance uh, at that time and also for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles, 
chapter 15, 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And what we're continuing to study is the movement of the ark as David has attempted to move the ark to its resting place in Jerusalem. There's a failure because of uh, the ark being brought in not according to the standards of the of the law and this shows that God is not arbitrary God is not mean but they these rules are laid down these laws are laid down for the ritual because they are specifically designed to teach certain things about God about his distinctiveness his uniqueness his righteousness his holiness and that those standards have to be maintained that standards are not uh, something that are um, just sort of a good idea, uh, that they are just something that that you can strive for on occasion, but they are to be properly followed because they relate to God's God's character and who he is. And thus, when Uzzah reaches out to stabilize the ark, it doesn't just say he reached out and touched it. He, he says that there's a, a blasphemy that's taken, taking place here. It's a, a, a perversion of God. And so he's doing more than simply touching it. And so he is treating it with, with a lack of respect. And so that is why he is immediately uh, executed in the same way that Ananias and Sapphira are in the New Testament. And at the beginning of these certain periods of time, not just dispensations, but there's a transition here that is going on in God's plan under the uh, dispensation of the law, where you're shifting to uh, uh, a period where God's presence will be among his people. He will be enthroned as the king of Israel uh, between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant on the Temple Mount, and that he is emphasizing a lesson that he must be treated uh, with respect, and his the the regulations of the law must be followed uh, precisely. And so, as we go through this section in First Chronicles chapters uh, fifteen uh, and sixteen, we see a lot of detail given that's not given in Second Samuel. Remember, the purpose is different. Second Samuel is written not long after David was king, which means it's written probably in the um, some of it was probably written in the uh, early 10th century, uh, around nine, 995, 990, somewhere in there after, after David's reign is over with. And Second Chronicles is written after, after the uh, exile. So it's written after 586. Very well could have been written in that first period from 586 to about 450, somewhere in there. And the purpose is to remind people of God's uh, divine plan for Israel as well as God's specific plan for the house of David. So First Chronicles chapters, chapter 17 is going to refocus the a post-exilic generation on the significance of the Davidic covenant. And what is interesting here is a couple of things, but you have a lot of attention given to the ark. And after the defeat, the conquest of, of uh, Jerusalem in 586, the ark is never heard from again. There's a lot of theories, or a lot of people, there's the... Uh, 
people searching for the Ark of the Covenant, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and all of these other things, and nobody knows if it survived. One view is that the Babylonians took it along with all of the other furniture in the in the temple and melted it down for the gold and uh, jewels and everything else that made up and comprised the the furniture. Others believe that the ark was hidden deep below the um, the temple mount, and it was never brought out again. There's no knowledge that we're aware of that it was known about in the second temple period. There's no evidence of that. If if it's there, it was kept secret throughout the second temple period. So uh, every now and then you have things that happen in Israel where there are uh, people who have attempted, a couple of different groups over the last 30 years have attempted to go uh, under from that. There's that one long tunnel that we've gone through. When I take a group to Israel, we always go underneath the uh, western wall and we see the subterranean areas. And there's one area there that's very close to the uh, <coughs> the, to the holy of where the holy of holies was. It's still about uh, probably about 50, 75 yards from from where the the ark would have been, but that's the closest point. And there was have been a couple of groups who have attempted to uh, go through that wall and uh, try to discover something, but nobody's ever discovered anything. So it's either lost to the ages or it's hidden. But during this period that Second Chronicles is, I mean, First and Second Chronicles were written, nobody knows anything about the ark. Furthermore, there's no descendant of David on a throne in, in Israel. So you don't have a Davidic kingdom. So Zerubbabel is of Davidic descent, but he's not the king. So it's, it's interesting how this is written. So much attention is paid to this. And the reason is, is because they believe there is a future. And that kingdom, the Messiah will come, and that kingdom uh, will be uh, will be established. So there's a lot of attention given to what happens in what happened in the establishment of the ritual and the worship in the temple during the first temple period as a means of giving a pattern to what should take place when they rebuild the second temple and reestablish the second temple worship. They're not going to reinvent worship and singing and music and the psalms now there's a point there because one of the things that we're going to do in this study over the next couple of weeks is go back and revisit what is going on in terms of church music today and as most of you know if you go to most churches today they don't sing what are often referred to as traditional hymns there, they play different um, different musical instruments. There's often it's very loud. It's influenced by not just personal preference, which is how it's presented today. Oh, that's just your generation versus our generation. Well, let me tell you, that idea would not have flown with the, those who were in the post-exilic generation. The priests were saying generations doesn't have anything to do with it. There are certain absolutes that must be carried through because when you're talking about worshiping the creator God of the universe and his holiness and his majesty 
and his righteousness that certain things must be followed. There are certain principles that must be adhered to in the writing and the performance of music and how people conduct themselves in uh, in public corporate worship and that this is significant. And we live in a generation today which has the uh, narcissistic arrogance to claim that they're going to create a new music and ignore all previous church music, completely unaware in some cases, willingly ignorant in most cases, that the music and the words that they uh, sing as worship are influenced by postmodern ideas, they're, they're influenced by pagan ideas of what worship is, and they're influenced by just the uh, emotionalism that comes along with a postmodern culture that has rejected external absolutes. And so it's built on something that's totally subjective. And this is a real battle. It's been a battle through the entire time that I've been a pastor. And I've had many people who've left because, oh, you, I had one person say, if you don't go with contemporary music, you will never attract young people. Now, there's a, a, an assumption there, isn't there, is that what is important, first of all, is attracting young people, okay? Is that a mandate in the Scripture? Is that a criteria for successfully carrying out the teaching of God's Word? Not necessarily. You had times in Israel's history when the love for the Lord was not passed on generationally, that there were changes in those generations from one to another, both from a spiritually focused generation to one that was spiritually negative, to one that, to one that was spiritually negative, to one that was spiritually positive. Who was the worst king, the most evil king in the history of the southern kingdom? It was Manasseh. Manasseh was involved in child sacrifice to the arms of Molech, the fiery, uh, fiery infanticide that took place as part of that idol worship. And he was responsible for uh, the execution and killing of many, many of the, of the uh, prophets of the Lord and many who were following the Lord. And what happens halfway through his his reign. He reigned for over 40 years, one of the longest reigns in the Old Testament. Halfway through his reign, he truly biblically repents, turns back to the Lord, but the discipline that will come from his disobedience is still set. And during the last seven or eight years of his reign, he is a co-regent with one of the godliest kings. How does that work? When you have two kings and one's the worst, most evil king, and one is the one of the godliest kings in the Old Testament, that's an interesting pair to rule. So what you see, though, is not this idea that somehow because generations change, a new generation gets to rewrite the standards. It never has happened, and yet that's what goes on today. And so you have this idea that you have to. Uh, go along with the changing tastes and standards of the next generation in order to be popular and in order to be to be accepted. And uh, sometimes that might be true if you're not violating biblical standards and and protocols. Sometimes it 
you have to understand this is an extremely complex cultural issue that really started with the church growth movement and ideas of cultural relativism that began to influence the modern modern missions movement or i'd say the coming out of the 60s and it, a lot of it can be traced back to key thinkers and those who were influential coming out of Fuller Seminary in Southern California in the early 60s. And those who were in their missions department uh, were bringing back a lot of relativistic ideas, having worked in these different cultures, not only gave, um, gave birth to uh, a lot of wrong ideas in, in missions, that this also gave birth to what became known as the modern church growth movement. The granddaddies of the modern church growth movement came out of Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's other major uh, claim to infamy was that though it was founded well and it was named for a well-known conservative evangelist of the of the 40s and and uh, 30s and 40s and early 50s, uh, it was. Uh, and it started with a doctrinal statement that held to inerrancy and infallibility. By 1960, it was already violating that. And they had faculty members that were no longer holding to inerrancy or infallibility. So it's like a row of dominoes being knocked down. Once you get away from biblical authority and the infallibility of Scripture, then you no longer have an absolute ultimate reference point, no matter how much lip service you give to it. And as time goes by, it started dominoing through many different areas of their uh, of what they were teaching. By the time you get into the mid-70s, they're getting into some really bizarre stuff in their classrooms. You had people like Peter Wagner and John Wimber who were doing uh, experiments with demonism in the classroom and miracles, and they taught a course on miracles, how you too can perform miracles. And that gave birth to what became known as the Vineyard Movement or the Wimber Movement or the Movement of Power Evangelism. Uh, the third wave of the Holy Spirit in terms of uh, understanding the uh, Pentecostal movement. First wave, second wave was the charismatic movement. Third wave is a uh, power evangelism or the Wimber or Vineyard movement. So all of this happens. Theology is a seamless garment. And once you start tearing it apart, it starts causing problems in all kinds of related areas. And a lot of the modern, this whole contemporary church mu music thing has its roots in this non-biblical philosophy of church, non-biblical philosophy of evangelism, and non-biblical philosophy of culture. It's not shaped by divine viewpoint at all. But you won't find very many pastors who talk about this. There's some outstanding books that are available to read by people who are well-known. We had one man, Scott Annual, who was here, who's a professor at uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, who's written quite extensively in this area. And uh, he would be in uh, complete agreement with the kinds of things that I'm teaching. And he came here, and you can go back to, I think it was 2011 or 2012, he was a speaker at the Chafer Conference, and those uh, messages are up on, on the website. But there's very what's distressed me as a pastor for 
38 years is that there are very few people who sit on the pew who want to ask and answer the question, is there a biblical basis for what I like to sing at church? They want to sing what makes them feel good. They want to sing what they like. And what we see in Scripture is our likes and dislikes and our views of of many things are shaped by our sin nature. And when we are saved, we have to be uh, let the Word of God change those values and uh, and understand those things. So uh, we have to go back every now and then and revisit this because I'm sure there are people who think, well, you know, it, we, we would have a few more numbers if we would just change the way we do music. I get this. I know some of the other uh, pastors in town who have teaching ministries. They get it as well, and we're just considered old dinosaurs. In fact, uh, uh, that one of the trends, and all this stuff is just trendy stuff, one of the trends is obviously dressing down a lot. You're not going to get people out of your church now if you don't dress like a slob in the pulpit and you see these pastors just watch them on tv and they come out and they've got on a pair of sand look like they're going to the beach and they don't dress as if they are going into the presence of the king of the universe the creator of the universe they wouldn't dress like that if they went to uh, the white house if they had an audience with the president or with the queen of england or some other uh, high official state they would not dress like that. I mean, even Zuckerberg, when he went to went to uh, uh, Congress and testified last week, put on a coat and tie. So there is that sense of respect that is communicated. But but I have learned recently that a lot of these these big church growth um, sort of generic evangelical churches that don't teach a whole lot that they got really upset with Joel Osteen. They're mad at him because he wears a coat and tie. So they just want to bring everybody down to their level. And frankly, it's a level in the gutter. And and unfortunately, it attracts a lot of people because we don't live in a culture where people want to constantly better themselves and improve themselves. They just want to wallow in their emotions and they want to wallow in what they like and not let the Word of God say, well, maybe what you like might not be what God likes, their standard. So we'll get into that over the next two or three weeks. So we're going to be looking at music, worship, and the spiritual life, begin to get into that in this lesson. What we've seen in terms of our structure of Second Samuel, we're in this second, uh, still in the first section, how God blessed David and he unites and expands the kingdom. And that's part of what's going on as David brings uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God, into Jerusalem to create a central sanctuary. The Ark was taken from Shiloh where the tabernacle had been. The tabernacle had probably been moved down to uh, the area around Gibeon somewhere. Uh, the ark was not with the tabernacle. Everything was a mess ever since uh, the early part of the book of Judges. And so we see how this third part is where we are, Second Samuel 6. God is enthroned in Jerusalem. So we've been following the ark of the covenant, 
and we're going to look at this chapter in First Chronicles 15. The first three verses we looked at last time, which focus on uh, David going back to the Scripture to correct what he was doing. That's always our standard. We have to make sure we properly understand the Scripture. And that means we have to search the Scriptures. We have to study the Scriptures. We have to do all those different things that are that are involved in in uh, analyzing the scriptures from word studies and grammar studies and theology, all of those things, and understand the background and the culture of the time. And so David goes back and he realizes that as he studies the Torah, that he's violated the, the standards God gave for how the ark should be transla- tra- uh, uh, how it should be transported. And that there there are these rods that go through there that aren't supposed to be taken out of the rings. That the Levites uh, are supposed to carry uh, the the Ark of the Covenant. It's not supposed to be put on a on a cart pulled by oxen. And so he recognizes that that it has to be done God's way, and that's God's right as a creator because He's designed the universe a certain way, and uh, we have to understand that. Second thing we're going to see in the chapter in verses 4 through 10 is David organizes the Levites for the movement of the ark. It's well organized. It works like clockwork. He spends time because it is a value. It's not something that is impromptu. He did that already, and, and it cost a man his life. He has to do everything right. And everything we see in this chapter is that which is thoughtful, it's well-planned, it's prepared, it's rehearsed, it's organized. There's not one thing in this chapter that leads us to think that any of it is just uh, just impromptu, just something that is done on the spur of the moment. So he organizes the Levites, then he prepares them spiritually. They have to be sanctified before they move the ark, the ark and then they will organize the musical worship. So we went through the first three verses, how uh, David goes back to Scripture for correction. And as we get into this, I went through three, uh, four introductory principles of corporate worship. First of all, God is the one who defines worship. Worship is treating God with honor and respect, and therefore he is the one who has the right to define it. It's not something that we define on the basis of how we feel or what we think is good, but on the basis of what God says. This is what Uzzah came to realize, is that he tried to deal with God on his terms, and as a result, he lost his life. Second, we see that worship is not determined by how we feel, but by our conformity to God's righteousness and his revelation. We must be properly adjusted to God's righteousness. First of all, that happens when, we're, when we trust in Christ and we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So that makes us acceptable to God. And we have to then operate on the basis of his revelation. In the Old Testament, it was one way. In the New Testament, as Jesus told the woman at the well, we, there would, a time would come when we would worship by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. The word we saw, worship, means to bow down to God. Uh, originally, it has this idea of kissing, which is the idea of expressing uh, a kiss, doing homage to a ruler, 
bowing down became part of that and so this is the idea it indicates submission to the authority of God as the ruler so we're submitting to God's will and then fourth that worship has order and structure it is not something that is just spontaneous although at times there's a spontaneity to it it still fits the order and structure uh, of scripture First uh, Corinthians fourteen thirty three. God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. So you don't just do it any which way, uh, any which way you want. Okay, I looked at the English words that the uh, for worship, which means to acknowledge the worth or value of something. You're expressing honor toward God. Um, it's not really a feeling, as the concise Oxford English Dictionary says. It is an expression of reverence and adoration. We'll take some time to talk about the role emotion plays. Uh, the ar- archaic meaning is really the meaning we have in Scripture is the idea of honor or respect given in recognition of merit. We value God because he is the creator and the redeemer. Uh, both the Old Testament word, chava, indicates to prostate prostrate oneself to worship, meaning to bow down, and it's a way of expressing your submission to God. And the Greek word proskuneo has the same idea. And so we see this applied to the Magis. They worshiped the infant Jesus, that they brought gifts and fell down and worshiped him. It's that idea of bowing down before him. And, of course, the passage I just quoted in John 4.24, that we would, uh, after the time of Christ, worship not in a central sanctuary, but by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. So then, in verses 4 through 10, we get into the organization of the Levites. Now, this is one of those passages where I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but when you're reading through your Bible... I would bet that most of us would hit verse 4 and skip down to about verse 12 because those names just don't mean anything to us. Same thing with the, uh, at the very beginning of Chronicles. We start reading all of these lists and all of these genealogies, and we don't know who anybody is. Let me suggest that what you should do is, as you read through it, circle the names that you recognize, Look for something that's familiar because you'll recognize a few. Now, one of the reasons that you have these names here, think about this. Israel's been out of the land for 75 years now. We got another time period when Israel's been out of the land, but this time for uh, uh, over 1,900 years. And now they're coming back. So it was a compressed time, much shorter time. Uh, and with that first uh, diaspora after the Babylonian during the Babylonian captivity, and so when they are coming back, they have to rebuild the temple. They have to restore temple worship. They have to re-identify who the priests are, and so you have to go back in the records and look at the genealogies, and you have to trace those genealogies because if you're not a priest, a descendant of Aaron then you're going to get in trouble if you uh, try to function as a priest. So all of this is part of it. So uh, that's why you have all of these 
all of these names. Furthermore, you have all these names because he, the writer of Chronicles said, saying, when we rebuild the temple, we have to bring back the glory of David and Solomon, and there need to, needs to be choirs, there needs to be orchestras, we need to sing the psalms, and this is what they did to organize the psalms, how they established these um, guilds of musicians and singers. And if, if we know anything, we can extrapolate that the musical instruments would have had to have been uh, constructed by Levitical craftsmen. All Every instrument that's used would have to be sanctified and set apart to the Lord. So all of these things would have to be done correctly. So that's where you have these names that come in. And so when we read them, and you read verses 4 through 8, I just want to point out that we have four primary names in this list. They're the children of Aaron. You have the sons of Kohath in verse 5, the sons of Merari in verse 6, the sons of Gershom in verse 7, and the sons of Elizaphan in verse 8. And so here they are. You have four orders here, and for some reason, Elizaphan has been made a separate clan, even though he's a descendant of, of uh, Kohath. And trust me, the genealogy of this gets quite a bit larger. I just tried to pull out the main name so that we could simplify it. These three are the sons of Levi, and they established the three basic clans of the political, I mean, of the Levitical priests. Kohath is your primary one. <clears throat> Notice one of, he's got four sons, Amram, who is the father of Aaron and Moses. You have Ezar, who's the father of Korah and many others. I just put Korah in there. Remember, Korah is the one who leads a rebellion uh, during <clears throat> the period of the uh, wilderness wanderings in Numbers. You have Hebron and Uziel. Uziel is the father of Elizaphan, and so he becomes the head of a, <clears throat> a clan. So Moses' father is Amram. He's got a brother, Ezar, so Korah, who leads this revolt against Moses, is his cousin. Sort of miss out on those family connections if you don't pay attention to these genealogical charts. Also, Nadab and Abihu, remember these are the two that brought the uh, wrong kind of incense into the uh, tabernacle, and <clears throat> God took their life, just like he did Uzzah. They are Moses' nephews. So this is all part of that of a of a close family. Now in First Corinthians, I mean First Chronicles fifteen, we read, and David called for Zadok, Zadok actually, Zadok. We have a Zadok's jewelers here in in Houston. Okay, y'all probably know that. That's a Jewish family. The owner of the jewelry has a brother who's a rabbi, and if you are in um, if you're in Jerusalem, and if you have been to Jerusalem, and you know where the uh, YMCA is, and everybody, if you don't know anything about the YMCA in Jerusalem, it's not like any YMCA you ever saw. It is a very old building that was built in the 20s. The architect was the same architect as the uh, Empire State Building. 
It is an absolutely beautiful building, and they have a great restaurant there. And usually when I'm over there, one of the nights we'll go there. It's right across the street from the King David Hotel, and just about a block from that, that's where uh, Zad, the owner of Zadok's Jewelries, that's where his brother, the rabbi, has has a uh, place there. He's got a ministry for for Jewish children there, and they have a, a, a lot of stuff there. So uh, that's a priestly family with a name like that. He's a descendant. They're descendants of this uh, Zadok. And then Abiathar the priest. Now, what do we know about them? Well, we know that they were both priests or high priests uh, during the time of, of David, that uh, Abiathar was the, the high priest who was at Nob when Saul sent his uh, soldiers there under Doeg the Edomite, and they slaughtered all the priests. But uh, uh, Abiathar or Abiathar was able to escape. He's the last high priest in the line of Eli. His father was uh, Pinchas or Phineas, uh, and he escaped the massacre there and went to uh, David and brought him the ephod at, when he was at Keilah. We studied that. And so uh, this is significant. He becomes a high priest. He's loyal to David until uh, the time that David is about to die. And when David is about to die... It is uh, uh, Abiathar who decides to support Adonijah as David's successor instead of Solomon. So when Solomon became king, um, Abiathar is retired and put out to pasture, and Zadok is made the high priest. So that's the significance of of those two two men. And... um, then you have these other Levites mentioned, Uriel, Asaiah, uh, Joel, Shemaiah, uh, Eliel, and Aminadab. Aminadab is the house where the ark was, was kept. So these are all Levites, five different Levites, and we don't know much more about them other than they were uh, Levites who were appointed by David to move the ark to Jerusalem at this particular time. And that's about all you can find about about them. So those are the key men who were moving the ark. And then mentioned the sons of Hebron, who's one of the descendants of Levi. He's another brother to Amram. Uh, and then a mention of Eliel, the, of the sons of Hebron. Eliel is the chief and 80 of his, of his brethren. And of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab is the chief one, and there's 112 of his uh, brethren. And so when you go through uh, this material and you read all of these lists and talks about how many uh, brethren they had and, and how many uh, in, in each uh, family or sub-clan, it comes to a total of 862 Levites that are mentioned here. So when the ark is being brought in, that's a high number of Levites that are named that are part of the central um, ceremony moving the ark into the city. So this is a huge operation. And when you've got that many people involved in something, everything has to be thought out and orchestrated or everybody's going to be falling all over themselves. And so there has to be be structure and planning and rehearsal 
before you actually do it. Now, here's the same chart I had a minute ago. Hebron and Uziel are two of the other sons of Kohath, and these are the ones that are mentioned uh, here in First Chronicles 15.9. You have Hebron and uh, Uziel who are mentioned there. So they would; those are uh, tri- uh, sub-clans, really, of the tribe of Levi. The clan would be Kohath, and these would be the, the uh, sub-clans. So we, that brings us to the third section of the chapter in 15.11 to 15. In 15.11 to 15. Well, before we go there, if you just turn back two or three pages, and you can see a parallel chapter in chapter 6. This is one of those that you skip. I know you. When you read through Chronicles, I've got to read five chapters a day, and I'm three weeks behind. Thank heavens I've made it to First Chronicles. I can skip the first ten chapters, and I can almost catch up. I know how you think. Okay, if you look halfway down through uh, chapter 6, down to verse 31, you read, Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song, in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. So he's divide, he divides them into musicians and into singers and uh, goes on in verse 32. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the, of the tabernacle and of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord. And there, there's a list of all these different um, Levitical priests and, and groups and I want you to look down to verse 39. You have uh, mention of Heman the singer in verse 33, and then in verse 39, and his brother Asaph. Uh, Asaph is the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Is- Israel. And Asaph is important because he authored 12 of the Psalms. Um, he authored uh, Psalm 50 and 73 to 83. And so Asaph is very influential, and he is going, he sets up a school of music, and this trains musicians. So this is something where you get together, and uh, you go out into the barn or the shed, and you get a bunch of your neighborhood guys together with their instruments and start figuring out how to make music. They, they, these guys are starting the Juilliard School uh, of Music for the temple worship. And the point I'm making is that that this should influence how we think about music and the and the kind of music and the the aesthetics of music that that often are overlooked in what uh, passes for music uh, today. We read in verse uh, 12, he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves. See, they have to prepare spiritually. He's organized them, and now they have to be prepared spiritually. This is the word kadash from the verb, which means to set apart or to consecrate. It's related to the verb uh, to be holy, to be set apart. And here it's in the hithpael stem, which in Hebrew means it's, it's, it's reflexive. They would cause themselves 
to be sanctified. So they have to sanctify themselves. They have to go through the ritual cleansing and washing. This is all a picture of what we do with confession of sin. We are sanctifying ourselves in order to be able to worship God. And that cleansing comes because positionally we've been cleansed by Christ at salvation, but experientially we still sin, so we have to confess sin. That's what's what's portrayed here. So they have to sanctify themselves. That you may bring up the ark of the Lord of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. Now the implication here is, Uzzah wasn't sanctified, and they didn't go through this process when they initially tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem, and they suffered divine discipline for it. It's the counterpart to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's talking about the Lord's table and says, many among you are weak, which means spiritually weak, many of you, and and some sleep, which is a euphemism for death. They've gone through the sin under death because you have not Uh, observe the Lord's table uh, correctly. So the solution is you have to examine yourselves, which is the same as looking to see if there's sin in your life and you need to confess it. So verse 14 we read, So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles. That isn't what they did the first time. See, this is what the Word of God does. It, it teaches us, it uh, rebukes us, it corrects us, and sets us on the path of righteousness. That's uh, exactly what Second uh, Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is talking about. The Word of God it got, is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, that is teaching or instruction, for reproof. You did it wrong. See, we live in such a weeny snowflake generation today that nobody ever wants to be told that they do something wrong. Everybody has to be a winner. Nobody can do it wrong, and if they don't, if they do it wrong, then they're just going to run off and, and have a pity party somewhere and blame it on you because you weren't sensitive to them. Uh, they'd have a hard time with God, and people like that do have a hard time with God because they uh, want everything to orient around their own feelings. So... Now they've been David's been rebuked, and he's been corrected by his study of Scripture, and so now they are being instructed in the path of righteousness, and so they carry it, uh, the ark in according to the word of the Lord, and so after they do that in verse uh, verse fifteen. Then David, verse 16, Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers, accompanied by instruments of music, yet stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals. Uh, The word there for cymbals, we think of big cymbals. Uh, They could be small cymbals. It it could be uh, like castanets. It could be, but they're percussion instruments that would be used to keep time just as as drums and and cymbals and castanets do today in in orchestra. So it was something like that by raising the voice with resounding joy. And so that recognizes that part of singing has to do with the celebration of God's grace and his goodness to us. So verses 16 to uh, 26 talk about David organizing the musical worship of the Lord, that this is something that is is focused on. 
And I'm not saying that when you go to a lot of these churches that they don't ever rehearse or they don't ever go through. It's the type of music, it's the preparation beforehand in their life, and it's the kind of music. And that's one thing that impressed me with Scott Annual. There are three intellectual disciplines that are necessary to think accurately about the kind of music and worship in the church. The first is, is biblical knowledge. You have to know what the Bible says. You have to understand uh, the, the, not only what the Bible teaches, but the systematic theology. You have to have that correct. The second thing you have to understand is the whole issue of worldview and philosophy. And the third thing that you have to understand uh, is the idea of, of, of music, musicology. Now, I've got a minor background in music. I grew up taking piano lessons and I was in the band through junior high and high school and the orchestra and things like that, which gives me a basic understanding of music. But I have a master's degree in philosophy and I have a, you know, multiple degrees in theology and Bible. Now, Scott Annual has a master's in musicology He's got a solid background when you read his writings. He's got a solid background in understanding the language and the thought of philosophy from classical philosophy into its development in the, in the Middle Ages. And he has a background in theology. So he can speak to the areas of musicology with a lot more authority than I can, but I can check him on so many areas in terms of theology and philosophy. But what I find is that most musicians have no idea that the music they play, I'm not talking about the words, that the music they play reflects a worldview. Plato recognized this. Change the music, you change the worldview. This has been understood since ancient classic times. If you never studied Plato, you don't understand those things. You just think, well, this is what's popular today. No, it's popular today for a reason, that the way people, the reason you didn't have rock in the 1850s is because people thought differently. But there were generational changes in terms of a worldview shift that occurred from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, middle 1900s to late 1900s. People looked at the world differently. The worldview shifted. And that affects everything. It affects all your, all your arts. It affects vi- uh, visual arts. It affects, you just look at, take, take a history of art course sometime. Uh, last year when I went to Italy, and you go through the museums and you look at the classical uh, sculptures, and you look at uh, the art from the Middle Ages where they believed in in absolutes, and there were absolute standards uh, that were reflected in in sculptures. There were standards of of beauty and perfection, and that uh, if uh, you're going to have a statue that is going to reflect the beauty, for example, the great uh, uh, David statue of, of Michelangelo, there are mathematic proportions to the way that the face is constructed. A beautiful face has certain proportions. The Greeks developed this back in, in, in the ancient world. They understood that for someone to be beautiful, 
that there had to be a certain ratio in terms of the length from forehead to chin and the width and the nose and everything like that. It just wasn't wasn't haphazard. And instinctively, we recognize that when we look at someone and say, that person's really handsome or that woman is really beautiful. It, they fit a classically understood pattern, okay? It's not just because they appeal to my personal subjective taste, but they fit a, an external standard. So all of this is being taught to these generations of musicians that are, are listed here in verses 17 and, and following. And so all of this is, is thought through. We have their, uh, <clears throat> their names listed, uh, the musical instruments that are listed, and all of this is designed ultimately to an expression of verbal language from musical language. And so those those go together. Now we often, just in, in within the last week, I talked about Psalm 19, that the heaven declares the glory of God and the firmament uh, showeth forth um, his knowledge. Let me just read that because a point I want to make in the next verse. And it says, Night unto night, a day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There's a nonverbal communication. There's a nonverbal language there. Language isn't just human language with words and grammar and syntax, but language can be expressed. Uh, and, and, and thoughts can be expressed non-verbally through images, through what has been, what is in the creation, so that people can understand who God is from what He, what He has made. But this is also true of music. I'm not talking about the words. One of the things that comes up is, well, we're singing biblical words, yes, but you're putting them to music that communicates a different language. Okay, music in itself communicates things about about reality, and so you have to understand what that that musical language is. So these these passages, you skip down to verse twenty five. Uh, so David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went to bring up the ark of the covenant with the Lord from the house of Obed Edom. With joy, and so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. So they are, there's this sacrifice. It's, they're cleansing the way of the Lord through these, these sacrifices. And then David is, is dancing before the Lord. And this is very interesting to look at this because uh, you, you, we, we can run into a couple of errors here. As we think about David dancing before the Lord, he, he's got a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Hananiah, who's the, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. This is the garment of a priest. So he is functioning as a king priest, just as the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, will function as a, as a king priest. And we read thus that all Israel brought uh, up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, and making music with stringed instruments and, and harps. Now, this isn't just a, a disorganized sound. 
They are making melody. That implies that there is an, an, an absolute sense in which they are playing uh, distinctive tunes. People are not just clapping and shouting randomly. Nothing that we've read to this point would indicate that this is something that is uh, random or haphazard or something that is spur of the moment. It's all structured and it's well planned. And so in verses 29, uh, we see that they brought the ark uh, into the city of David, that uh, Michal, his uh, wife, who's a daughter of Saul, uh, looked through a window and saw David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. Now, what's going on here, and we'll talk about this later when we get through with the section on music, is that she she has disdained for David already. This is not the cause for her disdain for David. The cause for her disdain from David is that David is seen as responsible for the failures of her father, Saul. She is still loyal to her father. And so she already has uh, this disdain, this disrespect uh, for David. She's never shown that since their, the early time of their, their marriage. And so this is just an, uh, another excuse for her to reject David and to ridicule him. So that's what's going on in the background here. But what happens is that when we look at this and we see that it's described as David whirling and playing music, that we we make some fundamental mistakes. We look at this from the viewpoint of our contemporary frame of reference. I think there's two mistakes that are made uh, in interpreting this. Is this, this is, he's just out there doing whatever he wants to do, and he's just, it, it just the, the, he's, he's leaping and jumping around and gyrations and everything, and it has no order or structure. All of those same verbs could be applied to any classical ballet. Leaping, jumping, whirling. What happens is that we bring our presuppositions of a non-organized dance style, that he's just doing whatever he wants to do, is expressing his emotions of the moment, and we read that into the text. So the two dangerous presuppositions are, first of all, that we read this in terms of our own generation, that this is a self-centered, disorganized, impromptu form of dance. But that's not necessarily what those words would mean. As I pointed out, you can describe the movements of many in a ballet with those same terms, but it's very well organized and structured and planned. Second thing is, when I read the literature on this, uh, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, that almost every commentator uses the word that this is some kind of ecstatic dancing. Now, I read an article by a, a excellent Baptist expositor of the word named Leon Wood, who wrote an outstanding introduction to the Old Testament, an ex outstanding commentary on Daniel, outstanding commentary on Judges. He probably died back in the back in the 70s or early 80s, so he's an earlier generation. He was a dispensationalist. And he wrote an article in the Evangelical Theological Society journal 
that I read when I was in seminary, and it you know there's some things you read and you just know this guy's nailed it, and he's swimming so he's swimming upstream so much on this, and his basic thesis was ecstasy, emotion, getting your emotions all stirred up is the modus operandi of all the pagan priests. That's what they're doing. They're using sometimes drugs, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're using alcohol, but the whole thing is to get you all worked up into this emotional state, and that, is, that ecstatic state is defined as worship. And so you don't, when you read the commentary, they do not draw a distinction between the modus operandi of the pagan priests. For many of them, it's a presupposition that the paganism came first in the Bible. That's liberalism. And that the Bible is just sort of a scaled-down, improved, sophisticated version of what had gone on before in this sense of the evolution of religion. So Leon Wood came along and says, all of this is just being read into the Bible. There is nothing in the Scripture to indicate that ecstasy had anything to do with the worship of Yahweh. The worship of God came first, and it was perverted in the old before Noah, and it's perverted again after the tower, after the flood, and after the Tower of Babel. And so, the second presupposition is that David is doing the same kind of thing that was seen and that we understand from pagan worship. And once we get those two ideas out of our head, then what David is doing here is different. Nothing that David has done to this point is 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 uh, impromptu. None of it is spur of the moment. None of it is um, disorganized or unstructured. So what makes us think that suddenly he gets to this point, he just lets it all go? I mean, that's just not even logical. But we have to do that in our generation because we've made everything so narcissistic, self-absorbed, and irrational that we have to interpret the Bible that way. And it's, it's just uh, not correct. My point is that nothing we've read indicates that anything that takes place in this chapter is left unplanned, unrehearsed, or impromptu, extemporaneous, or spontaneous. And we need to understand that has, I think, great implications for worship. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be uh, certain things that are spontaneous or extemporaneous, but that that's all done within a very structured environment. You know, we think of the kind of prayers that come out in much of uh, Pentecostal charismatic movement where you hear them say, well, it's my prayer language. God gave it to me, and he answers my prayers when I pray in my prayer language. Well, do you understand what you prayed for? No. Well, how do you know God answered it? You don't. But that's the claim they make because it makes them feel good. And, of course, if you tell them that, that, then it makes them feel bad, and they don't like you so. Anyhow, so next time what I'll do is I'll come back and we'll begin looking at the uh, introductory comments on music and worship and just work our way through and think our way through what the implications of this are for uh, music and worship in the church. 
Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to see these patterns that are laid out in Scripture and the uh, effort, the work, the thought that goes into worshiping you, that this is something that, that just isn't just some, oh, yeah, we're going to get up and go to church this morning and we're going to, uh, we're going to do whatever happens, but that it's, there's preparation, there's thought. It is treating you with great respect and honor because of all that you have done. Father, as we study this, we pray that it would impact and elevate our own understanding of uh, music and worship, what we sing and why we sing it, and that you would be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.